You can turn to Isaiah chapter 30 this morning. I realize I may be the only one, but uh, man, I love this cold weather. Give me, give me 32 over 102 any day. When I, when I was a kid, you know, it's surprising me watching my children's reaction to the cold. You know, when I was a kid, you just bundle up, go out. I mean, there's nothing wrong. This is great. I love this weather. And I remember if it got, you know, really bad outside, what I would do is I'd go into the garage. And it was cold in the garage too, but I would go down there and, uh, and I would practice uh, my shot in hockey. I would blast pucks against my dad's workbench. He had this big heavy, thick workbench that was made out of plywood, and he didn't mind if I just blasted away at the thing. And I remember one day I was down there, and I was blasting away with uh, my slap shot against this thing, and I got to the front of the garage, and I was just flipping the pucks back toward the garage door, and I just kind of got careless, and I flicked one back, and it went right through the window in the garage. And and I did the only reasonable thing for a a 10-year-old who's just broken something. I, I, I pretended it just didn't happen. Which, you know, it didn't work very long because my dad drove home and there was glass on the driveway and a broken window and snow blowing into the garage. I mean, it had to be fixed. Something was broken. Something was broken. Our sin is like broken glass. And we like to ignore it. But we like to pretend that it, it just didn't happen at all. I watch when my children sin against one another. They sin against their mother. And they like to pretend that nothing happened. But it's like broken glass. It has to be fixed. Because God won't ignore it. He can't ignore it because God longs for his people. He longs for things to be repaired. He is not a God who does pretend that sin doesn't exist. He's a God that steps in and he repairs all that is broken. In Isaiah chapter 30, we have a beautiful picture of God stepping into the sin of his people. A beautiful uh, paradigm for how God repairs that which is broken in our lives. I want you to begin reading with me in chapter 30 and verse 1. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine, and make an alliance but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. How does God respond to our sin? Well, the first thing that he does is he convicts. God doesn't pretend our sin does not exist. God declares sin as sin. Now, let me put you back in the context again where we are in the book of Isaiah. You remember that Two weeks ago, we were studying, it was 701 BC. Ahaz was the king of Judah, and he was under attack from Syria and Israel. He had chosen not to form an alliance with them against the strongest nation in the world at that time, Assyria. Instead, he decided to trust in Assyria rather than trusting in God. And God gave him an option. He said, Ahaz, Ask for a sign. I'll give you a sign that will prove my strength. I will give you a sign that will prove that I can deliver you from Syria and Israel. Just don't trust in foreign nations. Don't trust in Assyria. Just trust in me. We know that Ahaz made the wrong choice. We know that this serves as an illustration of something we're going to see throughout the book of Isaiah, which is about God and his character, but also about God's servants 
and how they respond to him. Ahaz, as king of Israel, was leader of the nation, or king of Judah, he was leader of the nation, and his choices affected the entire nation. He was a servant who chose not to serve the Lord, but he served the king of Assyria. He said, I am your son, I am your servant to the king of Assyria rather than to the Lord his God. Now, when we hit Isaiah chapter 30, Hezekiah is king. Syria and Israel have been wiped out by the Assyrians. It is 735 BC. And Hezekiah is faced with a similar dilemma. Because Assyria, which had been temporarily an ally, is now an enemy and they are attacking the nation of Judah. And Hezekiah, as king of Judah, has to make a choice. Will he turn to foreign powers, the only one left being Egypt, the only human hope left being the nation of Egypt? Will he turn to them for strength and rescue and deliverance? Or will he trust in the Lord his God and in the Lord only? And what happens in chapter 30 is that the king and the people are moving toward trusting in Egypt rather than trusting in God alone. And so God's going to step into their lives with discipline. Why? Because God loves us so much that he longs for us to be in perfect fellowship with him. God steps into the nation's life and begins the process of fixing what's broken. And the first thing that he does is he convicts them of their sin. And when God convicts of sin, he speaks specifically. Notice in verse 1 again. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine and make an alliance but not of my spirit in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh, to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. That word refuge, shelter, shadow, all of those are used of the Lord God. He is to be their refuge, their shelter, their shadow. They are to have a unique and special relationship with him. And so God names their sin. He says, you are abandoning a unique relationship with me by forming a foreign alliance. See, when God convicts us of our sin, he speaks specifically. He doesn't speak in vague and general terms. He names sin as sin. And he does it first through his word. Look in verse 9. It says, For this is a rebellious people, false sons, literally sons uh, not who speak falsehood, but sons who are false. They are lies. Why? Because they're not behaving as sons should behave in loyalty to their father. Sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the, of the Lord. That word for instruction is uh, literally, that's, that's Torah. Okay, that's, that's the law. And God had spoken specifically to his people. He said, Do this and you will live. Interact with one another in this way. Interact with me in this way. Interact with the nations around you in this way and you will live long. You will live long on the land. You will be blessed on the land. You will have wonderful lives. And God was very explicit. There were no vague generalities. This is the way to live. On the other hand, if you don't live this way, I'm going to have to discipline you and I'll have to move you off the land. God was very specific. He gave them the law so they would know how to live. God speaks conviction into our life. It's specific. It's not this vague general feeling of, gosh, I'm just a terrible, rotten person. It's not this general sense of guilt and shame and depression. That is Satan moving you away from the Lord. When God speaks, he speaks specifically about our sin. He names our sin as such. As we move through the book of Isaiah, we're going to see that there are actually four big areas of sin. 
We're going to address each of them. The first is this forming of foreign alliances. In the book of Deuteronomy, the nation was told very specifically, Moreover, he, that is Israel's king, the king of the nation, shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said you, you shall never return again that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. He shouldn't do this. Why? Well, because all of these things essentially represent trust in another nation rather than trust in God. He didn't say, don't marry lots of wives just because it's going to be bad at your house, which it would be, but that wasn't the point of this verse, right? The point of this verse was that represents an alliance with another nation. You're trusting in their strength. So don't go down there. Specifically, don't go down to Egypt. Because I rescued you out of that place. I redeemed you out of that place. And when I did so, I purchased you for myself. You're in a unique, special, intimate relationship with me. So don't trust in anything or anyone else to deliver you from your hardships and to bring you blessing in life other than me. God speaks through his word. I have had this experience too many times to count where I sit down and I begin to read the Bible and I'm reading and all of a sudden I just have to stop because I have a sense that God is speaking to me. He's saying, Brian, that, what you just read, that applies to you. And it applies to you in this way and in this situation. I trust you've had that experience. If you haven't, you need to spend more time in the word. Hey, that's why we teach the word on a Sunday morning. One of the primary reasons. That's why when we read the word, we read the same passages over and over. We memorize certain passages because God speaks to us directly, specifically, clearly in his word. And he says, this is the way to have life and this is the way to experience death. God speaks a convicting word through his word that he's delivered to us. Second, he speaks to us through his spirit. Chapter 3 and verse 20. Although the Lord has given you the bread of privation and water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right or to the left. You hear one speaking right behind you. And in their day, God's spirit was mediated through the voice of the prophets. For us today, God's spirit dwells within us. And God's spirit, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, can and will speak directly to your heart and to your mind. And will reveal truth to you. One of the spirit's jobs in your life is to convict of sin. To say, that's sin. Let me name it as such. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul wrote, Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. And our job is to listen. To hear the voice of the spirit as he speaks. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or to the left, in other words, the spirit's guidance in your life will cover all areas of life, whether you turn to the right or you turn to the left. Third way that God speaks to us is through our conscience. Okay, conscience is that innate capacity to discern right from wrong. 
And even those who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ have conscience. Conscience is a, a part of human nature. So even if you know someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ personally, the Spirit of God is not dwelling in them, you can appeal to conscience. That capacity to know what's right and what's wrong. It's like a muscle. It's, it's, it's an ability. It's a capacity. And the more you use that conscience, the stronger it can become. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, it says, Solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. When the Spirit speaks into their lives and their conscience hears it, they choose to listen and obey. Hey, that's what it meant when Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Not, you have the organ of hearing and you can hear the physical sound, but pay attention and respond in obedience. Because as you do so, your conscience becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. And you are able to discern more and more clearly and more and more quickly what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong. It's a muscle that can be developed. It is also a capacity, though, that can be damaged. When we refuse to listen, the conscience becomes marred. Hebrews 3 verse 13 says, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, as long as there is opportunity, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Encourage one another day after day. Why do we have fellowship? Because day after day after day after day, we need to encourage one. Hey, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Pay attention. Are you paying attention to the Lord? Hopefully you have godly friends who can speak into your life and remind you and ask you from time to time, are you paying attention to the Lord? I see something in your life and it doesn't look like you're paying attention to the Lord. Today, respond. Today, respond. Because if you don't, you can become hardened. And it's like a, it's like a callus or as Paul describes it, it's like a burn. It's like a scar. And eventually if you ignore your conscience and ignore your conscience over and over and over again, that capacity to, to discern good and evil begins to atrophy. And it becomes more and more difficult to listen to the voice of the Lord. And that's what's happening to these people in Isaiah chapter 30. Look at verse 9 again. He says, For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, You must not see visions. And to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more of the Holy One of Israel. You can imagine that they see Isaiah coming down the path and they say, no, 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 not again. Isaiah, if you're going to say anything to us, say something nice. Couldn't you say something nice for, one, for once? Isaiah, we get so tired of hearing all these bad things about ourselves. Prophesy illusions to us. And if you can't say something nice about us, Isaiah, say nothing at all. Kind of take that whole principle and bend it, don't they? <laughs> you know, I will tell you, honestly, I, I hate conviction. I hate it. I, I, just, I, don't, I don't like thinking unpleasant thoughts about myself. I, I You know... I understand this. I've, I've seen this. I've seen this in myself. I've seen this in my children. You know, when we're in the midst of trying to convict, speaking very specifically about sin in their lives, and I, and I watch them, and they're they're going like this. 
You know, and, and sometimes they just take their face. I remember my parents doing this to me. Do I have your attention? They're, just, they're, trying, they're trying not to lock on. Look in my eyes. You know, and they're, just, they're trying to avoid because they don't want conviction. Don't say anything bad. I don't, I don't want to hear negative things about myself. On the other hand, I, I love conviction. It's my wiser moments, I think, gosh, if I'm really a fool, I sure hope God tells me. Oh, he is telling me. <laughs> I should listen. Better to have him tell me of my foolishness so that I can turn from my foolishness than to remain in it. But it's hard. And our initial reaction is to push back. Don't, don't say it. But if we push back and we push back and we don't listen to the word or the spirit speaking or our conscience convicting, then God has to turn up the heat. And he moves from conviction to warning. Read with me in verse 12. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, since you have rejected this word, okay, this specific word, the Torah, the law, the specific conviction of your sin, don't make foreign alliances. Don't abandon your special relationship with me. Since you have rejected this word and you have put your trust in oppression and guile, you have relied on them. Therefore, this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall. A bulge in a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant. Whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar so ruthlessly shattered that a shirt or a piece, a fragment will not be found among its pieces to take fire from a hearth or to scoop water from a cistern. It will be pulverized. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in repentance and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. You were hard. You were stubborn. And you said, no, for we will flee on horses. Therefore, you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man. You will flee at the threat of five. Until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop, as a signal on a hill. He says, woe to you. Watch out. Look up at that wall. Do you see that big bulge in the wall? Do you see how that wall is starting to tip? It's tipping toward you. I'm warning you. I'm warning you. Step away from the wall before it comes crashing down because you don't know when it'll come. But when it comes, it's going to come suddenly, it's going to completely, and it's going to be utterly devastating. It'll be pulverizing. And in God's grace, he does. He warns us. But when we don't listen to the warning voice of God's spirit, he moves on to discipline. And the reason that God disciplines us is very simple. It's because he loves us. God loves us too much to allow us to continue down this pathway of, of self-destruction. So he steps into our lives and he disciplines us. Principle is laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. As a, as a perfect father disciplines. The word for discipline means to correct so as to educate. In the Greek translation, it was paiduo, which means to train a child. God's discipline is not retribution. God's discipline is training. God's discipline is always for a positive purpose. 
It's not retribution. It's not, it's not whimsical. God doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't lose control of his anger and discipline us. God always disciplines us rightly, correctly, and always for our blessing and for our good. Hebrews chapter 12, there's a long section about the discipline of the Lord and how God works in our lives. It concludes like this. For they, that is our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. Were they always perfect? No, they weren't. But God disciplines us always for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That is God's blessing in our lives. If God steps in to discipline us, it is always, always, always for our good. So that, as the writer says, we may share his holiness so that we may be trained in the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives. Look with me in chapter 30 and verse 18. It says, therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice How blessed are all those who long for him. Literally, it says, therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. When we're under discipline, we say to ourselves and the Lord, Lord, how long? And God says to us, as soon as you're ready, I'm just waiting. I am waiting for you to turn and be restored. That's how long. Because God does not prefer discipline. God prefers his graciousness in our lives. That is what God longs for. Throughout the Bible, you'll see three ways that God disciplines his children. The first is that he withholds protection. That is, he allows the natural consequences of sin to proceed in our lives. Why? Because he loves us too much to be blessed by foolish behavior. So that bulging wall that's about to crack, it begins to drop a brick or two. And it hurts and it's painful. And it's a natural consequence of the decisions that we make. If you spend more money than you make, you know what? You're going to have a financial crisis, eventually. If you speak unkindly to your spouse, day after day, month after month, year after year, you know, eventually, you're going to have a relational crisis. If you eat too much or drink too much, or you take drugs, or you abuse your body, you know what? Eventually, you're going to have a health crisis, eventually. As we observed a couple weeks ago, because it doesn't happen immediately, We often say to ourselves, well, that wall, it's not really going to fall on me. And God says, yes, 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 it will. I'm warning you, it will. The natural consequences of sin in my universe, they happen. Please, please, step away. There wouldn't be motivating if every time we sinned, the consequence happened like that. That'd be motivating. Every time you tell a lie, your lips got big. You know, they just kind of swell up. Or every time you listen to music you shouldn't listen to or, or sounds or something, your, your ears started swelling. Or, and every time you looked at something you shouldn't look at, oh, your eyes got real big. Or you, you thought a thought, something you shouldn't think about. And your head started to swell real big. You know, it's like, like Pinocchio. When he lied, right, everybody knew he's lying. He knew he was lying. He could see his nose growing. Everyone around him knew. That, wouldn't that be motivating if it just, just like that, something happened? You take something you shouldn't take. Ah, you know, your hand hurt or it swelled up. But it doesn't happen that way, does it? But God says eventually it will. Eventually it will. That's the natural consequence of sin. Second thing that God does is sometimes he steps in and he brings 
circumstances into our life that are distressing and painful. Verse 20, it reads literally like this. Although the Lord has given you bread, privation, and water, oppression. These things that you're experiencing, Isaiah says, these are from the Lord. This first one, withholding protection, that's passive. God allows the consequences of our sin to happen to us. The second one, it's active. Sometimes he'll actually step in and he will send suffering and stress and anxiety and grief and shame. All these things come into our lives because God has actively intervened in our lives. Now, does that mean that every time we have a negative circumstance, it's a result of sin? No, clearly it does not. But it's easy for us to think that way. I remember when I was in college, I was playing basketball up at, up at Reed one day and, and I went up for a rebound. I came down and, and I sprained my ankle really badly. I mean, really bad. And I was laying on the floor and I, I thought, I mean, the first thing that came my, into my mind was, God, what have I done? <laughs> what was my sin? Ah, what was my sin that I would sprain my ankle? You know, and I thought about it for a while and I examined my conscience and I couldn't come up with anything. And I realized, no, I, I sprained my ankle because I landed on that guy's foot. And that's just why it happened. That was the experience of Job. Job searched his life. He had time to do so. And he thought and he thought and he thought. And he realized, no, in everything in my life, if I have sinned, I've made sacrifice. I have asked forgiveness. I have confessed. my, My life is blameless before the Lord. So every negative circumstance is not the result of some sin, but it is an opportunity for us to stop and say, God, have you brought this into my life to get my attention, to correct my ways? Maybe he has. I don't know, but sometimes he does. Sometimes he does. Third thing that God does is that he suspends or he withholds fellowship from us. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That verse doesn't mean that God doesn't like us anymore. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love us anymore. It means that when we sin, something's broken, and God will not rest until it's fixed. And there is an alienation, there's a separation, there's just not that, that joy in one another's presence. Because God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And so God doesn't allow us to have that intimate fellowship. There's a barrier between us. So what can we do about it? Well, in a word, our response is repentance. Look at verse 15 with me. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. The word for repentance in the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word shuv. It means turn. Okay? Very simple word. Repentance in the Old Testament just means turn. Okay? And not 360, but 180. Okay? It means turn. Stop going that direction. Go this direction. Don't head this way. Head this way. It means, it means a change. For those who did not believe in God, it meant stop disbelieving in God and worship him alone. For a non-Christian today in this age, it means stop disbelieving in Jesus and believe that he is the only one who can rescue you and save you and deliver you. He's the only shelter. He's the only one who can remove the penalty of your sin and give you eternal life. So turn. 
For the believers to whom Isaiah is writing here, it means stop abandoning your special and unique relationship with God. Stop trusting in anything else to give you safety and refuge and deliverance. Just trust in God and in God alone. This word for quietness means literally to let your arms go slack. Stop. Stop resisting God and just trust him. Trust him. Just trust him. And don't trust him in something else. Just trust him. The moment that you do, God removes his active hand of discipline. It doesn't mean that he can stop the train of consequences that we may have started. If you're driving your car at 100 miles an hour toward a brick wall, the sooner you hit the brakes, the better. If you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait and then hit the brakes at the very end, there may be consequences. God may not be able to stop all consequences, but his active hand of discipline is removed. The moment that we repent, look at verse 19. O people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you when, at the sound of your cry, when he hears it, he will answer you. And Isaiah moved from poetry to prose and it's just punchy. It just goes, when he hears it, he responds just like that. And immediately he wants to turn toward you and have you turn toward him and have intimacy and fellowship and joy and peace restored. Perhaps this morning you sense God's spirit speaking to you in a specific way about a specific sin. The response is simple. It is, God, what you have named as sin, I name as sin. I agree. Forgive me. And give me the strength as I turn from that and turn toward you. If that's the case, let me encourage you. Don't even leave here this morning without responding. Or maybe you have a friend or a family member and you see in their lives that God has moved in and he is disciplining and he's active in their lives. We encourage you, pray. Pray that God would reawaken their conscience, that God would soften their hearts, give them ears to hear, pray. Because there comes a point in time when our words just begin to fall on deaf ears and we just need to pray. Maybe you've never turned to God for the first time. What you need to do this morning is to turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe. I can't deal with my sin and I can't change myself. Please forgive me of my sins. And change me. As we close, I want to give you just a few moments before the Lord. Let the Lord's Spirit speak to each of us, and then I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that merely human words are not adequate to change us, to, to break through hardness that develops in our hearts. So I do pray that your spirit would speak in in a powerful way through your word, that our consciences would would be soft, our hearts would be soft before you. Father, we acknowledge well that we do not have strength to change ourselves, but we trust in the power of your spirit dwelling in us. We cling to him, and I pray, Father, that throughout this week, for each and every one of us, we would, we would in fact 
long for you as you long for us. And we would abide in your son, Jesus. We would spend time intimately listening to your voice. And that your spirit would begin that process or continue that process of molding us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, for all of us that you'd soften and inflame our hearts and our minds to listen to the voice of your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you.